Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Prem Kumar, CEO of Humanly, a recruiting tech platform that's raised $5.5 million in funding. Prem, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Prem Kumar, uh, based out of uh, Seattle. My background has primarily been in, in HR tech. So I spent about 10 years at Microsoft. Um, I was the PM for our global HR portal and then went to a company called Tiny Pulse, uh, focused on the employee engagement space. And then we founded Humanly in the recruiting automation space about two and a half years ago, oh, three years ago. Amazing. And two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and entrepreneur. Is there a specific CEO that you'd say you admire most? Yeah, so I'm definitely a big fan of Melanie Perkins, who co-founded Canva. I really am a fan of the Canva journey and hers in particular. And another one that I'm a fan of is David Cancel, who founded Drift um, and really built a category around something that hadn't existed before. Nice. Yeah, those are two great ones. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? And this can be a you know, business book or it can just be a personal book that's influenced how you view the world. I'll give you two quick answers. One is, and this is probably a common one in the startup world, the hard thing about hard things. But Ben Horowitz, I just like the kind of tone of reality that he um, was dousing people with through the pages. And, you know, another thing in my entrepreneurial journey that's been really interesting for me is just learning more about my family. So my, my dad did an informal little autobiography, but just learning more about my, my history, my family and, and the entrepreneurial journeys that they've been endeavors that they've been engaged in has helped give me more motivation as well. Oh, that's awesome. Was it just like a, a private audiobook that he created for the family? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, yeah, private for the family. Maybe we'll all put it online sometime, but it was... Uh, you know, just really cool to kind of learn about kind of how you got to where you are and kind of some of those foundational aspects that maybe make you who you are in some ways, which has kind of helped me as an entrepreneur kind of get my footing. That's awesome. Is it the company that's uh, going viral right now, where it's like every week they answer a question and then it gets turned into a book? Oh, not that one, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, something else I'd love to ask about as well, you know, before we dive deeper into what you're building there, for you to leave Microsoft and start a company or to join a startup, was that scary for you um, when you made that first jump? Yeah, it definitely was. So I had been at Microsoft for 10 years. I had just had my first kid, who's now seven. And it was, uh, you know, I'm leaving kind of a lot of familiarity. The Microsoft was my first job out of college as well. So um, leaving kind of that familiarity, that the benefits, uh, some of the structural things that make it convenient to work at big companies as well. I'd done a lot of, you know, when I, I always had that kind of entrepreneurial mindset. So I was kind of an entrepreneur at Microsoft. So it was always in the back of my head. But you know, after having my son, I spent a lot of time on paternity leave, just reflecting on my life and where I wanted to get to. And I loved the time at Microsoft. But one part that was important to be part of my journey was kind of testing the waters um, in the startup world. So that kind of pushed me over the, the edge there to make the jump. And it's funny enough, the startup I went to um, right out of Microsoft, Tiny Pulse, we had 
Microsoft as a client. So I ended up right back at Microsoft the very next week after leaving. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And what was that conversation like with your wife when you said, Hey, I'm going to leave and join a startup? You know, was she supportive? Did she think you were having a midlife crisis or some type of crisis? Like, what was that conversation like? Yeah, good question. So, I, one of the best pieces of advice that I've gotten from other founders is, you know, just do your best to kind of set expectations with those around you. This is really a journey you're embarking on with your family, with your significant other. So I did my best. I can't say it was perfect, but we tried to have those conversations around kind of what the journey looks like. And honestly, I'm a first-time founder, so I didn't even know what the journey might look like. So yeah, I think just being really real about what our goals were, what our family OKR goals were, where did we want to be, and is this entrepreneurial journey going to you know, maybe set us back in some ways to help us kind of move forward in other areas. I wanted to make sure that this wasn't just a me doing this because I wanted it and, and that we had a plan that worked out for everyone. So lots of discussions. Person just wanted, I think the number one was how are we going to figure out benefits uh, when we're outside of the large company setting and, and you know, those things can be worked out. But, you know. <laughs> I feel like that's always the big question, right? About benefits. Another podcast I was listening to, uh, the guy was saying how he sold his company for like 40 or 50 million. He was going to join HubSpot. And then his mom's first question was, do you still have health insurance? Yes. Oh, 100%. Honestly, that was really like I had kind of mentally jumped through all the other hurdles. That was that one thing probably helped me back for two or three years. I might have gone sooner if I answered that question sooner or put in the research to answer it sufficiently to myself and my family. But yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Nice. Well, let's talk about Humanly. So maybe let's just begin with the origin story. Yeah. So after, I guess I'll actually rewind even further than where I was going to. But when I finished at the University of Washington, this was uh, 2007, I finished undergrad. We were, I was applying to a lot of jobs. My degree was in tech. And, you know, that was a pretty good market at the time. I was actually 2006, not 2007. We'd have companies come down to campus that were hiring uh, for entry-level employees. And they would. I had a, a counterpart. She was in the exact same major as me, had the same credentials, much actually smarter than me in, in school. And But we'd compare notes from the interviews. And, and we'd be interviewing with the exact same companies for the exact same job with the exact same interview panel set of folks. And it would be one after the other. And it would just perplexed me how different the interviews were like in terms of you know, maybe there was some bias. She was being grilled on a, as a woman on a lot of questions that I wasn't on the technical side, but it also just felt very, it felt like a very unorganized process. And I didn't, didn't understand how they were getting to objective results based on kind of a lot of things that were happening there. So, you know, I fast forward, realized that hiring teams aren't innately biased. They're not bad. They're, they just don't have the, the tech to really engage with candidates at scale in these high volume scenarios like university recruiting or hiring support professionals. So, you know, we felt that, you know, as I went to Tiny Pulse and met a lot of companies, Tiny Pulse was focused on employee engagement, but I felt a lot of that started with hiring. We found there's a lot of tools to help track candidates, applicant tracking systems, a lot of sourcing tools, but there weren't tools that help you have a better conversation, more efficient, more equitable conversation with your job candidates, one that's structured, one that's consistent and lets you have more objective results. So I had a co- my co-founder I met at Tiny Pulse. Uh, so he joined me and we started Humanly with uh, two co-founders, went through uh, Y Combinator in 2020, started selling towards the end of 2020. And, and the, the rest has been history so far. And what would you say has been your number one takeaway from Y Combinator? 
my number one takeaway from Y Combinator, and, and this might sound cliche, but I'll just very specifically tell you how it helped us. And I guess twofold. One is, you know, don't start by boiling the ocean, build something that a, a small group of people love. And hopefully that small group of people is representative of a larger market. But then the other piece that may be sounding cliche is just, I can't express enough how everyone knows they should listen to users, talk to customers, but just how we went about listening with, with no ego, even if we had a idea already, um, really, really finding out what that that pain is. You know, one example, one of the things that probably surprised me the most when we went out and talked to candidates, we're, we're not selling to candidates, we're selling to hiring teams. But as I talked to both candidates and hiring teams, one of the things that surprised me the most, we would have hiring teams that were in a good way, really focused on candidate experience, which is awesome. But when we talk to candidates, one thing that surprised me is we, so we have our tool, the candidates can rate their experience engaging with Humanly. And even the candidates that didn't get the job rated it very strongly, which was a surprise. And I realized through talking to candidates and talking to recruiters that really, you know, setting expectations with candidates, telling them what the next step is, they're not going to not like you because they didn't get the job, you know, but treating them with respect and, and kind of following through, even with a simple, not like auto-generated follow-up email can go a really long way. So I think, you know, paying attention to maybe a small group of people and what's really the deep pain there, and then just talking nonstop, buying coffee for whoever you can that could be a potential buyer or is a user, what was important to us. I feel like that's one of those things that every founder knows, like, yeah, 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 you should talk to customers. It's important, but everyone forgets. And it's so easy just to forget and get pulled into you know, other startup-related stuff that you got to focus on. Yeah, totally. And I think like having a structure to it. So instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to talk to 50 people, what are the outputs you're looking to get out of it? What are what are you trying to ascertain? Uh, what thesis do you have going in? Kind of putting a little process around that, similarly to maybe other research processes you might run. But I, I found that. And then getting rid of ego was important. It was very easy to like push them down certain ways. So basic user research, but even though people know they need to do that, it's unfortunately, I, I, I don't see that always happening. <laughs> and how many of those user interviews do you think you did? So I have a spreadsheet. I think that initially, so we did about 55 that I kind of deep dived into. I had a spreadsheet that kind of broke them out by industry, by type of demographic, by pain points. And yeah, and some of those actually, the other benefit of doing user, user research early is some of them actually turn into customers later. I can come back three months later and say, hey, that thing you said you really wanted, we've actually built now. So that was helpful from a lead gen standpoint as well. And how do you incentivize them to talk with you? Was it really just, hey, I'm doing this startup and I want to chat? Or did you incentivize them in any way? So I had been in my career for a little while at that point. So I kind of used my network. So I wasn't doing any like pretty incentivization, but I, you know, take them to maybe a copy and pay for it. Um, but that was the extent of it. But yeah, I think it's worth the money if you want to put a little into it. And I, I do see a lot of, you know, as long as you're running the process in a way that gets you what you want out of it, I definitely uh, recommend doing it as early as possible. Nice. That's super helpful. And in terms of adoption, are there any metrics that you can share that really demonstrate the type of traction you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, one thing that we're really proud of is just the candidate experience side. So particularly with our customers, many of our customers, these are hiring teams that are hiring high volume. So they're paying in time and money for, you know, 4,000 people to apply, but they only have the human time to actually engage with 20% of them. So can you turn that around and engage with everyone through things like chat, through things like automation, so that you're talking to everyone that is paid in time and money to come to your brand? And I think the thing that jumped out to me was the candidate experience rating. So, 
you know, early on, there might be questions such as, you know, do candidates want to talk to technology? Do they want to talk to a chatbot? The problem with high volume is with these high volume jobs is 80% of them weren't getting to talk to a human anyways. And the 20% that were, were waiting a week to schedule it or two weeks to schedule it. So it's not necessarily comparing automation and chatbots to a human. I think if we had unlimited humans, that would be great. We could talk to everyone, but that isn't possible. So I think the the data point to me, um, yeah, you know, we passed a million candidates that we've engaged with, and and the average rating they have of the experience is about four point eight out of five. And that then there's a lot of like you know anecdotal information they type in around that. But that to me, the candidate experience was I was proud of that achievement. Wow, that's amazing. And what about any patterns in terms of the hiring teams that are using the product? Are you seeing it as, you know, maybe mid or late stage startups? Is it Fortune 500? What does that look like? Yeah, good question. So most of our customers will break down between mid-market and enterprise. We're generally targeting teams that are about a thousand and above, sometimes less than that, but generally around that mid-size, really looking for, you know, about 70% of Companies in the U.S. have some jobs that are high volume, so entry-level support, sales, operations. That's the segment of the market that we're targeting, and we're still at early company. I think as we move to later stages, uh, we're going to have more of a focus on the enterprise. We do have a handful of enterprise customers right now. And what's that go-to-market motion look like? I saw on your website that there's a free trial. So is this entirely PLG, or do you have an enterprise sales team as well? No, so we've done some experiments with PLG, but that certainly is not reflective of how we're getting our customers right now. And that, that's we're fairly early, I think, in the PLG or self-serve side. Generally, we're going out and getting customers either through outbound. So we are uh, have a, a small sales team. So emails, calls, looking to get out. I think the buyer dynamic here, particularly as things have gotten back to in-person a little bit, a lot of these folks are people, people. They want to be engaged in the HR and talent acquisition tech space personally. So going out to conferences has been great. I was at HR Tech in, in Vegas uh, earlier this year, which was awesome. Um, so that's another strategy, uh, the, having a ground game on the in-person side. And then we are looking to, you know, get deeper on inbound and from like a content standpoint and whatnot. But but yes, and generally we are selling direct. So this isn't, um, although we are experimenting a little bit with PLG, this is generally a, a top-down sales. So selling to like a head of talent, a director of talent, so they can make their team more efficient versus an individual person picking it up. And what's the typical buying process look like for HR and recruiting tech? Is it always or typically enterprise you know, top down or is PLG something that a lot of other platforms are also using? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it, it's changing a lot. You know, there's much different buyer behavior, even the types of things that buyers are looking to. I oftentimes look at one of the reasons why I respect David Cancel at Drift, I oftentimes look at what's kind of happening with buyers on the marketing and sales automation tools. And then not just from like a buyer standpoint, but an innovation standpoint. And then you eventually see that coming to HR tech and, and recruiting tech and talent tech. You know, for example, you know, in the past, we'd have a CRM on the sales side, you'd have tools that maybe help you go out and find prospects. And then all of a sudden, there's tools that came out to help you actually talk to prospects better. So long outreach. That is the kind of last piece that's now happening in recruiting tech where people are now more comfortable with allowing technology to talk direct. But more specifically with your question, so very much historically has not been PLG. It very much has been at least at the enterprise and maybe mid-market side in the past. And when I say historically, I'm going back, you know, 10, 15 
20 years. But what I've seen in my career is this is shifting for sure. You know, you have individual recruiters or teams picking up tools like Gem, or, you know, maybe there's more budgets that they might have. And, but a lot of things that these large enterprises still do go through um, corporate recruiting, which, which can be a good thing, um, depending on who you ask. Another thing I'm seeing, though, is there's a little bit of a decentralization, maybe not intentionally, but where, you know, at these big companies, you have like a head of support or a director of support that really cares a lot about the hiring process and is might be signing up for their own tools to help make their interviews better, not just, you know, in addition to following the standard process that the enterprise had. So, and then there's other pockets of buyers. So I would say employer brand and brand in general is kind of converged where there's sometimes marketing budgets in these candidates facing types of technologies. Uh, if you're a B2C company, your candidates are your customers, oftentimes your best customers. And then you also have budgets like diversity, equity, inclusion, which is awesome, um, is starting sometimes has their own budget. So a little bit different pockets of money and kind of how the process works. Interesting. And you've mentioned Drift there a few times. So I have to assume that it's at least floated around in your head, the idea of category creation, you know, following what they did with conversational marketing. So for you, how are you viewing your market category? Is this a new category that you're going to create? Is this a category that you're going to transform? What are your views there? Yeah, good question. And, and we're kind of balancing, you know, as a founder, I'm balancing what buyers think this thing is and what the language they speak with, you know, how analysts are looking at this thing, which should be similar, but not always exactly the same. And then where my vision is. Yes, one of the reasons for I really love what, you know, David Gerhardt and David Kensel did at Drift in terms of creating this conversational marketing and making this kind of two way chat conversation a thing, a category. When I think about our space, you know, there's different categories we get put in or we put ourselves in. You know, I'm seeing like chatbot automation as a category, interview analytics. To me, like the category that we align with for this conversational AI for recruiting. But to me, when people think conversational AI, they're thinking chatbot. And right now, there's a lot of cool stuff coming out with like chat GPT and all that. But to me, conversational AI for recruiting is about any conversations you're having with job candidates, not just the automated ones. So even the human ones. Um, so any conversation you're having with a job candidate, how do you make that more efficient and more equitable? So we're kind of looking at this more from the candidate side where they have a purpose in learning more about the company and trying to get the job if it's a fit. They might be talking to different delivery channels through that process, but all those conversations to me fit within the conversational AI for recruiting space. So that's what we're trying to win, that direct conversation with candidate space. And because you're a conversational AI company, have you just had investors blowing you up the last week or two with uh, chat GPT coming out? Yeah, yeah, it's been funny. Uh, yeah, so everyone's, I just saw a meme today, um, that guy holding like a sign in, in San Francisco saying, stop sharing your uh, examples of GPT on LinkedIn. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of excitement. I think I was just talking to an investor that had a, like one of our existing investors that had a really... Uh, interesting take on, oh, I wouldn't say interesting, but, but just the hype cycle with a lot of this stuff where, where I actually do feel where even though some of this stuff is newer, and or at least it's gotten to this level, I really feel like we're in the thick of it. It's not the early pieces. I think there's very real applications. But if you're going to take something like GPT-3, I think the user context matters a lot. So our candidates don't want to just chat. They want transactions to happen. They want to be moved to the next step. You have to be tightly engaged with ATS. So I think there's a level of aligning to business process. And I feel a lot of the ML models will get somewhat commoditized, but won't get commoditized is the data behind it. 
and how you actually apply it to a specific use case. So like one thing we're doing is we're using our own generative AI built on top of GPT-3 to automatically generate follow-up emails for recruiters. So they'll, they can cop, they'll have an email after they get off a call with the candidate and it'll say, dear Brett, really nice meeting with you. I liked hearing that you went to school here, you did this and this, and then they can you know make some edits and fire it off. So I think using the generative AI as well as other technology in ways that isn't just throwing technology to human problem, but kind of helping things happen faster or more efficiently is important. And a lot of people are going to do great stuff. So I'm excited for all of it. But yes, I have been getting a lot of messages. <laughs> I feel like I've never seen a like a tech product go viral so fast before. Everyone's sharing it. Like yeah. my mom asked me about it. You know, like yeah. that's how I know it made it quite far if my mom's asking me about yeah. it. Yeah. It's cool stuff. It's really cool. Yeah. And what about the idea of breaking through the noise? Obviously, in HR tech, recruiting tech, there's just been a lot of movement, a lot of cash has flown you know, to this market or the segment over the last couple of years. What are you doing to really rise above all that noise and capture the attention of hiring? Yeah, great question. I, and there is a lot of noise for sure. I think there's kind of two strategies I've seen founders take or people in our space. One is just getting very specific in who you're solving the problem for. So maybe it's, you know, this is for hotel workers and to help you hire them. And it's a very kind of specific segment. I've seen founders get very specific on maybe they're selling to a lot of people, but the part in this life cycle they're solving for is extremely specific. In our case, it's a little bit of a combination of both. So we feel in we're not helping you, you know, hire for engineers, for example. We're very much focused on these high volume entry level roles where there's pain points around having to do seven phone screens a day and set, write seven sets of follow-up emails and take seven sets of notes and put it into your ATS. So how do we kind of help save time and then bring in the analytics to help you have better conversations? So I think that's one thing we've done. We've done kind of focused on who we're solving for. And there haven't been that many like breakout HR tech or talent acquisition tech successes. There's been a lot of unicorns recently by way of funding and, and valuations. but this isn't a market where there it's extremely saturated in terms of market share. It's saturated in terms of your LinkedIn inbox getting sold a lot of different solutions. But I definitely feel there's you know a lot of room to build a moat. And then I think the other piece of differentiation is, you know, I consider ourselves, and I wouldn't say we're not the only one in the world doing this, but we're definitely consider ourselves a, a data company. We're using data to help solve problems in the recruiting conversation space, but managing data and, and having a strategy for how you build value through it and how you have a better product through it, I think is, is really important to us as we think about the IP for our company. And as I'm sure you've experienced, bringing an idea to market, especially something that's innovative, is hard. And just building a startup in general is hard. What would you say has been your single greatest go-to-market challenge? And how have you overcome that challenge? Yeah, great question. So definitely lots of challenges. It has been hard. We pitched to a lot of people that just didn't get it early on until we kind of came back with customers and could prove it to them. There's a number. I would say really knowing not what to build, but what not to build was important to us. So I think there's a lot of these technologies, even some of the ML stuff that will be commoditized in one year, two years, three years. Some of the early chatbot players were basically, it was almost like building a SaaS company before AWS. So they're like building the cloud and then building an app on top of it, building the cloud in the sense of a lot of the kind of infrastructure around conversational AI had not been built yet. So the early players had to build that and versus us now having, you know, validated Azure infrastructure, the enterprise buyers can trust, and then us building IP on top of that. So I think the challenge was knowing like, 
how far to go and what we thought was technology that was going to solve problems, where to leverage, and then where to actually build IP. So that was a that was a challenge. Um, and with this new stuff and you know some of this way of thinking will come up again. Like how how much do we leverage GPT three versus where is the IP that we can build? So that was a challenge. Another one, and it's kind of interesting being in HR tech and talent tech. You know, I, I never you know this isn't always the top of my mind as something that would be a problem because I felt like I had experience with it. But really just, I feel we have a really strong culture, but it wasn't easy to get there. And I think early on, while I have experience, you know, at at Microsoft, at Tiny Pulse, just when you're a small group of five people, and then there's now there's five new people, and then there's five new people, really ensuring that you're aligned around your mission, vision, values, that everyone believes in the mission forward. Because it's a very, as you know, chances of success in the startup world are always going to be low. So you really have to be operating on all cylinders all the time. And I'm not saying like working 24-7, but just like in terms of being aligned on mission, vision, values. So that was actually a challenge that very early on, I thought we were there and then we had some issues. And now, um, fast forward a year and we're in a good spot. But that, the people piece, I underestimated, actually, because I thought I had a lot of experience with building teams. And a last question here for you before we wrap. If we zoom out into the future, what's the three-year vision for the company? So yeah, we definitely want to win this conversational AI for recruiting space, whether that happens in three years or not. Any company that is hiring for high-volume roles, we want to be the engine that's helping them have more efficient and equitable direct conversations with their job candidates. And, you know, part of that is maybe, as I think about three years, doing some big partnerships with the ATSs out there, the tools that come up funnel from us. Yeah, we're definitely looking to grow. I would hope each year we're growing 3x or so, it would be my goal. And I think the other piece is I kind of talked about the impact we're making. So with the 100,000 candidate conversations, one thing that I'm really proud of is can we turn that to a million a month? And by doing that, I'm basically saying there's now a million screening conversations that might have been done in an unstructured way, like I experienced when I was coming out of UW, University of Washington, they might have been done in a biased way, they might have been done in an inefficient way, but now and they might have taken a week to happen. But now all of those million per month are happening in a more structured, less biased and more efficient way. So I think the impact we're making to candidates is is going to be a huge way that I measure our, our success, uh, the greater good we're doing. And, and these are numbers we share with our investors, the impact metrics as well, not just the financial ones. Nice. That's amazing. Unfortunately, we're up on time. So we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, absolutely. So you can message me on LinkedIn and it will be me. I won't I won't have a chat GPT behind it talking to you back. Feel free to email me, prem at humanly.io. Our website is humanly.io. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to being in touch. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat and share what you're building. This is all super exciting and wish you the best of luck in executing on this vision. Thank you so much, Fred. All right, keep in touch. 